Welcome to the Vital Voices Power to Empower podcast series, where we're speaking with women leaders from around the world about their bold ideas, their courageous leadership, and their thoughts on the way forward. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. Our guest today is one of the world's foremost leaders. Over the course of her career, she has taken on some of the world's most insurmountable challenges, from human rights to climate justice to gender equality. The Honorable Mary Robinson was the first woman to be president of Ireland. She also served as the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights and as the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region of Africa and a Special Envoy on Climate Change. She is a member of the Club of Madrid and the Elders. She is the former president of the International Commission of Jurists and former chair and founding member of the Council of Women World Leaders. And today, President Robinson is president of the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Change. I'd love to first talk about, you know, you've taken on, as I said, some of the world's most insurmountable challenges. You've talked about how you are a prisoner of hope. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you sort of growing up, coming of age? Where does that optimism, that hope, that great desire to continually take, take on some of the world's greatest challenges? Well, I had no particular plan for my life when I was growing up in the west of Ireland, uh, wedged between these four brothers, which gave me an early interest, I must say, in both human rights and gender equality. And using my elbows, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I could see that uh, there were m many more limitations on what I could seek to do. Even though my parents, who were both medical doctors, told me that I could and would be receiving the same opportunities as my brothers, uh, Irish society at the time wasn't telling me that. So I decided to study law as an instrument for social change. I didn't want to make money out of law. I just wanted to try and open up society if I could. And I had no idea how. And then I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to the Harvard Law School. I'm the class of 1968, which some of your uh, listeners in the future of this podcast will say, oh my God, that's before the flood. But um, it was an incredible year, 1967 to 68 in Harvard. Many of my American contemporaries were questioning the Vietnam War as being an immoral war. Martin Luther King was assassinated in April 68. And just after I graduated, um, uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Mm. And we had our classes, but we also questioned everything, questioned law, etc. And what most impressed me was that the young people whom I was most friendly with weren't going into Wall Street firms. They wanted to go into poverty programs and civil rights um, the civil rights movement in the south of the country. And so I was fired up with their kind of, not just their idealism, but also their sense that young people really can make a difference because that was not what I saw back home in Ireland. In Ireland, you waited your turn and you waited and waited. And if you're a woman, you really waited and you didn't have much turn. And that was the way it was. So when I came back uh, and started to teach law and practice law in the courts, as a barrister, uh, an election took place in 1969, the year after. And uh, I challenged that it was elderly male professors who were elected to the three university seats of my university. There were also three other university seats similarly with male professors. 
And I was 25 at the time. And my friend said, look, if you're mad enough, we'll support you, you know, go ahead. So I went ahead and got elected at the age of 25. And that kind of that Harvard humility that <laughs> my husband used to tease me about, uh, anything but humility, um, the, the confidence that Harvard gave me uh, started me on a very early opportunity to teach law, to practice law um, in the courts and to try to help to make some law in the Irish Senate. So you originally became president really by being this unifier. But I would imagine that obviously serving as the first in the position of being president of Ireland, that was, you, you probably met some major resistance. Yes, I mean, political campaigns are not for the faint hearted, let's face it. And the presidential campaign that I was involved in in 1990 was rough and tough, especially towards the end. Uh, it was claimed that Nick and myself really wanted to divorce each other and were only holding together until after the election. Um, I was told that I had a newfound interest in family. And uh, that actually backfired on the person who accused me of that on, on radio, a former um, Fianna Fáil uh, minister of government at the time, uh, because the women's vote really came out in anger at that kind of assertion. But politics is quite rough and, uh, uh, you know, and, and women tend to get a, a, an even rougher deal, let's face it. And mm. they get accused of wearing the wrong clothes. If they speak out forcefully, they're assertive. All the, all the language used for men is they're courageous, they're, um, you know, they're, they're thought through, they're, they're uh, you know, all the, all the positive words. For women, it's she's shrill, she's assertive, um, she's a shrew. <laughs> uh, you know, that's just the way it is. Uh, and many of us uh, regard that as being unfair, but unfortunately, you know, what, what anybody going into public life needs to face up to and, and deal with. Can you talk a bit about being in that role? Obviously, a lot of pressure on you, but what I have seen in you is that you do lead differently. And that difference is with, in many ways, very much ahead of your time with great empathy, obviously with great sort of fairness and justice and collaboration um, and, and humility. You know, even, even, having, even having attended Harvard Law School with humility, can you talk about how, I mean, was that style embraced? Um, did you feel you, you, you know, you had to sort of unlearn some of the things that you were seeing around you? The presidency in Ireland is a non-executive presidency. The political power rests with the Irish prime minister, the Taoiseach, and a cabinet government. Um, so uh, the presidency is both above and below politics, if I could put it that way. Uh, you're a head of state, you represent the country outside, you receive incoming uh, important visitors, other presidents and other dignitaries. And um, the six men who uh, were elected before me or became president before me had really played a very uh, august but not very involved role, a role of elder statesmen uh, of a very kind of limited, constrained sense with red carpet and uh, very important but very remote and I was determined when the Irish Labour Party asked me to be a candidate and I ran as an independent in order to have a broad base uh, I was determined to try to argue for a much more proactive presidency at every level uh, to be you know involved at the local level where people 
you know, really cared about their issues at the national level, the honor of being president, and etc. But also the international level, that a small independent democracy like Ireland could play a role. So uh, the campaign for the presidency, apart from uh, some of the rough and tough issues that I talked about, was a wonderful opportunity for me to get to know the country. In 1990, Ireland uh, had benefited from our membership of the European Union or the European Community, as it was called then, and especially the agricultural sector through the Common Agricultural Policy. There was a bit more money around and people wanted the same facilities that cities had for children, for sports, for the elderly, for people with disabilities, etc. But they knew the government wouldn't provide that, just didn't have the capacity. So there was an incredible volunteering. And I picked this up very early on in the campaign and spoke about it in a way that people felt she understands us. And that encouraged me to really know that to be president, you must deeply uh, know what it is that people want and speak about it and speak to them and with them in the right tone. Uh, that in a way, it's not so much what you say, it's the tone in which you say it has to be right. And I was very aware that that was so different from my activist role as an activist lawyer taking cases in the Irish courts and the European courts and you know making a lot of breakthroughs and being very excited about it, or even a senator you know, proposing legislation or teaching law. This was a, a moral voice uh, on behalf of the people at, at, at all of these different levels. And it's, it's actually very difficult because you have to live it 24 seven. You can't escape that role. You've got to do it in order to speak about it in the way that uh, it, it, it requires. It's such an honor to be elected president that you really have to give it your all. So I know you've you've spoken about some of the challenges that you faced, um, you know, really just with with um, with heightened anxiety, um, and and obviously right now in this you know, uh, hopefully soon to be maybe post COVID world, but in this difficult you know economic downturn, there there are so many people struggling with mental health issues who feel very isolated, very alone, and. You know, I have listened to you talk about these issues, and I think it's so important that those, you know, at the top in these very senior roles talk about these issues so that they're not, you know, taboo. They're not, um, you know, something to hide away, but really something to something to talk about and something, you know, extremely common. Well, when I uh, had served a seven-year term as president, I decided not to seek a second seven-year term, uh, but to hand over because I'd, I'd opened up the office. I felt now if somebody else comes in, they can develop it further. And uh, I uh, was put forward by the Irish government as the second uh, uh, um, High Commissioner for Human Rights of the United Nations. The first High Commissioner had resigned suddenly just after I decided not to go forward for a second term. So, uh, I went from a very supported, very, uh, you know, incredible, rich time in, in every day being well supported and, you know, uh, being affirmed and knowing that I was doing good as president into an office of the UN, which was underfunded, fraught with problems, a huge mandate, very few resources. And uh, after the first two months or so, I began to be sleepless with responsibility, with that sense 
that I wasn't on top of the job because the job was almost impossible. And I began to take sleeping pills. And by Christmas, I, I went there in September 1997. By Christmas of that year, I came back to Ireland um, for a family holiday. And I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Um, when a brother of mine who was a doctor who had just come back from New Zealand said to me in that brotherly way, you know, Mary, if you're not careful, um, you're, you're going to have a breakdown. That was enough to have me say, oh, no, I'm not, and pull myself together, throw away the sleeping pills, take extra time uh, to rest. But I wrote a memoir quite a number of years later with my daughter, and I didn't actually want to talk about that. I wanted to skip over. You know, that was just a, a little personal stuff I didn't want to talk about. And my daughter, who's the eldest of our young, said, Mommy, I remember how you went into the bedroom. You didn't really want to talk to us. I remember you need to write about this. So I did. And actually, that was the most popular part of the memoir, as far as Irish people were concerned, because, you know, I was regarded as being successful. I'd been a president. I was now a high commissioner and I'd achieved so much. And yet and that taught me a hugely important lesson, which, as you say, rightly say, is really important now at a time of COVID. There is nothing wrong with admitting you're having health problems, with admitting you're having lack of sleep problems, worry problems, apprehension problems, whatever it is. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, we have to have much more self-care um, and acknowledge how important this is um, and acknowledge um, that mental health is something probably many of us will go through at some period, as I did um, at that time. Thank you for sharing about that. And um, it's so powerful that, that it was included in the memoir. Kudos to your daughter for, for uh, urging you to do so. I mentioned earlier that, that you really were the first to, at least in my mind, make that strong connection between climate change, not yet called climate justice or the climate crisis, um, really, and, and human rights issues. Can you talk about that? I mean, is that something that you began to see in your role as High Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN, or was that something you were always aware of? Far from being always aware of the impacts of climate change, I actually came quite late to it. I never made a single speech as President of Ireland during my seven years about climate. I did speak about the environment, but I, didn't, I wasn't aware because it wasn't affecting Ireland particularly. I knew when I became High Commissioner that climate change was having a big impact, but there was another part of the UN dealing with it. And I was in my human rights and gender and rights of people with disabilities and indigenous people's rights, big silo. And I didn't make the connection between climate change and human rights. It was afterwards when I had a small um, non-governmental organization I formed called Realizing Rights to work in African countries on the rights that really matter if you don't have them, rights to food and water, health, education, shelter. And I was also honorary president of Oxfam. So we were, I was working in a number of African countries and I kept hearing the same sentence, things are so much worse, is God punishing us? And I realized that climate change was affecting African countries disproportionately and in a very unfair way, um, it, it, because it was affecting food production. It was affecting the rainy seasons weren't coming or there were long periods of drought and then flash flooding that destroyed harvests. And this was really you know, accentuating uh, the, the, the problems of poor people trying to come out of poverty. And 
Since then, I've actually deepened this awareness that I call climate justice um, by really seeing about five layers of injustice that require that we have a climate justice approach to the climate crisis. And it definitely is now a crisis. Let me just very briefly go through those five layers. The first layer is that layer that I met in those African countries, that climate change unfairly disproportionately affects, and much earlier, uh, the poorest countries, the poorest communities, the small island states, the indigenous peoples. The second, and they're the least responsible for the emissions. It's also a racial injustice because they are the black and brown and indigenous peoples in our world. Secondly, the gender injustice, the different social roles of women, the different power that they have, sometimes different rights. They may not have land rights. They don't have access to credit or training in agriculture, etc. The third layer is the one that children and the young climate scientists, uh, activists have been telling us about, the intergenerational injustice. Um, Greta Thunberg and millions of young people now are calling us out and saying, we may not be able to have a future for our children and grandchildren. You have to do because we can't, we're children. You have to take the decisions now. And of course, they're perfectly right. The fourth layer is subtle. It's the difference between the pathways to development of the industrialized world, Ireland, the United States, Europe, etc. We built our economies on fossil fuel. We have to wean ourselves off as rapidly as possible. And with just transition, remembering the workers in coal and oil and gas, they helped us build our economies. They must be now part of the future with different skills and different jobs, and they mustn't feel left behind. And developing countries must get access to clean energy to help them to come out of poverty and uh, be part of the green future we're all looking forward to. The fifth uh, uh, injustice is the injustice to nature herself, uh, the loss of biodiversity and the um, uh, extinction of species. And the good thing, and I'll just finish on this, um, uh, this uh, in your question, uh, the good thing is we have two big conferences this year to help us to address both sets of problems. The first one is the conference on biological diversity. It's called COP15, which will be in China in October. And that will help us to protect, hopefully, 30% of the land, 30% of the oceans, really understand that we must restore biodiversity, we must rewild, we must regroup with nature, if you like, in all sorts of ways, recycle more carefully, et cetera, et cetera. And then the second big framework is, of course, the better known COP26 on climate in Glasgow, Scotland. And that's where governments really have to step up with their ambition. Many of them are now committing to be zero emissions, by, net emissions by 2050, but that's too far ahead. They have to tell us not only where they'll be in 2030, but where they'll be working backwards to 2022, 20, 23, 24, 25 in really cutting emissions. They have to be cut by about 50% by 2030. That's a huge challenge, but it will mean a great world, a very positive world going forward. As a leader in so many of these positions, um, as I mentioned earlier, you have led with a really different style, you know, a style that I believe is, is more represented in women with with empathy and cause-driven, sort of motivated by personal experience. And you were, of course, so kind to, to uh, agree to be featured in our most recent book, 100 Women Using Their Power to Empower, um, and really talking about your story and what has guided you as a leader. What do you see emerging when you look around the world, your role with the Council of Women World Leaders, 
Um, and in so, you know, working so much with young people, what do you see in terms of the way that leadership is shifting, right? I mean, certainly when, when you came into positions of leadership early in your career, um, you know, it was, it was more of that sort of hierarchical, you know, born into it, exclusive club, uh, holding power for the sake of power. But really, I think you have been part of this generation of women around the world who really recognizes that power does expand the moment it's shared. Can you talk a bit about that and what you see on the horizon? Are you, um, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic about the way that leadership is changing to keep up with these changing times and what the world needs right now? I do believe very firmly in a feminist form of leadership. I've learned uh, from participating so much in the women's movement here in Ireland and globally and, you know, the way in which uh, women network together. Uh, it's problem solving, it's respectful, it's not hierarchical, it's listening, and it's uh, very much reaching out to those who need their voices heard. And I uh, strongly believe in this. I have a podcast um, with Maeve Higgins, who's a comedian, so it's quite funny but it's about climate from a very, um, uh, you know, from the perspective of listening to women, particularly both in the south of the United States and the global south. And our byline is that climate change is a man-made problem and requires a feminist solution. And I do make it clear um, that, uh, you know, man-made is generic. We're all responsible. And a feminist solution is not confined to women. Uh, maybe we've given a good lead on it, but men are now switching more to a more feminist form of leadership, notably Obama, for example, notably Trudeau in Canada, mm -hmm. et cetera. But I'm very uh, you know, encouraged by the leadership shown by women who are leading countries through COVID-19. Jacinda uh, mm -hmm. Ardern is the kind of poster child, but there are many other women who've led well. The president of Taiwan, close to China, um, has led her people well by taking tough decisions. Um, the prime ministers in, in Europe, in Norway and um, uh, Denmark and Iceland and Finland, and also um, the uh, Angela Merkel in, in Germany. I mean, there have been surges, et cetera, but everybody feels, you know, there's a trust that the right decisions were being taken and attempts were being made to really make sure that people were protected at the right times, et cetera. And I think this has been good for women's leadership generally. Um, and uh, we're seeing more uh, you know, uh, cabinets where 50% are women, parliaments uh, where, you know, over half or uh, you know, close to half are women. And these are all important. It's important for women and men. It's important for humanity uh, because it's the diversity that makes for better decisions. We all, I think, have come to that wise uh, conclusion. Absolutely. So, so true. Mary, thank you so much for spending the time with us uh, today and just all your incredible wisdom and your leadership. We are uh, deeply indebted to you. Um, thank you. Not at all. And uh, all good wishes to Vital Voices. I've known the work of Vital Voices over more than 20 years. And I uh, know you go from strength to strength. And I love the way you reach out intergenerationally to young fellows and young women leaders. And uh, so keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. 
If you'd like to support our work with women leaders who use their power to empower others, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org, or you can text VITAL to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. See you next week.